We're jumping in at the third beatitude. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. It says this. It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now look, I don't know about you guys. I'm just wondering if there's anyone here who, like me, at some point has read the Beatitudes and gone, I seriously don't get this. I mean, it sounds like, you know, blessed are the depressed. <laughs> blessed are the sad. Blessed are the weak and afraid. Blessed are the people who always back down just to keep the peace. I mean, that's how it reads to me, if I'm honest, sometimes, right? And yet, uh, if that is the case, then Jesus is not really listening to his own teaching. Right, when we look at the life of Jesus, that wasn't how Jesus lived, not at all. I mean, Jesus cleared the temple with a whip. He told off the Pharisees to their face. People tried to throw him off a cliff. He just walked right through the middle of them. No one could lay a hand on him. This, this isn't what we see manifest in Jesus' life. And, and if that is true, I'm not so sure if really it is blessed. And, of course, the, ble the word blessed can also be translated happy. I had seasons as a kid uh, where, where I was uh, some of those things. I, I was, like most of us at some point, bullied occasionally. And there was a season when I was about 11 years old when I was bullied at school. But I wasn't just bullied by, like, you know, the tough kids. I was bullied by the kids the tough kids bullied. Like, I was the loser of the losers, and I knew it. I got beaten up around the back of the school gym one day, and it wasn't even the tough guys beat me up, it was the guys who got beat up by the tough guys. Just sad. Let me tell you, it wasn't blessed, and I wasn't happy. So when it comes to understanding what's going on here, I think we need to dig a little deeper, especially because if there's one thing we know about Jesus, right, he, he, he walked the talk. He didn't say one thing and say, this is the way to do it, and then go live a completely different way. And so when we look at Jesus, and he's living differently from how we today interpret those scriptures, then we need to take a deeper look at those scriptures, and that is what we're going to do right now. Now, there appear to be two schools of thought on what this, this scripture means, that particularly the word meek. I've done heaps of reading on this and listened to a lot of teaching on this in the last kind of 10 days. So... Two schools of thought. One is that meek literally means weak, passive, giving up power. It means never pushing back, always accepting, handing over your agency to others. And that somehow ultimately will bring glory to God and extend the kingdom. But there's another school of thought which says that meek doesn't mean weakness. It means power under control. It means strength that is completely submitted to a higher authority. It means being calm and non-reactive and choosing your response and pushing back sometimes, but never out of your own agenda. And that this will ultimately somehow bring glory to God and extend the kingdom. Now, the question is, right, which of these is correct? Because they're really different. And we need to understand what the Scripture is saying for us today if we're going to live this out as we follow Jesus. So we need to do a few things. Firstly, we need to look at what the original language says that the English is translated from. Secondly, we need to look at Jesus, the one who said this and whose example we follow. And then thirdly, for us to look at some of the other followers we find in the Scriptures. Now, our modern English usage of the word meek is not particularly inspiring. 
Meek nowadays carries this idea of being spineless or afraid or subservient or even mean-spirited. It paints the picture of a submissive and ineffective person. But the great Bible scholar, William Barclay, of the last century, uh, who happened to be in his day and even today an absolute genius when it comes to understanding Greek in first century Israel, he says that the word meek, in the Greek it's the word praus, he said it's one of the great Greek ethical words, and I'm going to unpack some of the things he has to say about it today. He says one of the challenges we have uh, in interpretation is that there's no one English word that fully captures the meaning of the word praus. In fact, there are three concepts tied up in this which every person back in the day would kind of hear and understand when they heard this word prouse being used. So we're going to go through those right now very quickly. Barclay explains firstly that the word meek in the Greek means, firstly, kind of balanced. And I'll unpack this for you, balanced. Great philosopher Aristotle has a lot to say about the quality of meekness. It was Aristotle's fixed method to define every virtue as the kind of average or the mean between two extremes. The extreme of too much on one hand, and then the extreme of too little on the other hand. So for example, the virtue of generosity was found between the extreme of someone who just spends everything they get and has no wisdom at all, and between that and the extreme of someone who is completely miserly, never gives anything and holds everything, never spends anything even on, of himself. The, the midpoint between those two, someone who's wise with their money but also generous, that's the virtue. And Aristotle says, in the Greek, all of these virtues are found in that middle point. When it comes to this idea of prowess, meekness, he said, it's the mean between excessive passion or anger over here and excessive passionlessness and angerlessness over here, a complete just not even caring in any way about what was going on. He said, prowse, this idea of meek, actually this is the sense of balance in the middle here. That's what we need to understand. And so the first possible translation of this beatitude is this. Blessed or happy is the man who is, or the woman who is always balanced, always passionate or angry at the right time, and never passionate or angry at the wrong time. Now, we might ask the next question, right, is, well, when are the right times and when are the wrong times? Barclay suggests that it is never the right time to respond with passion or anger if it's us who are being attacked. That as followers of Christ, we need to be big enough to take that. But it's always the right time if it comes down to somebody else. It comes down to that question of, is it all about me? Because sometimes, if we're honest, our anger is all about me. Sometimes even our anger that we call righteous anger, it's not righteous anger at all. It's actually all about me. Sometimes when we get angry with our kids, it's got nothing to do with our kids. It's all about me. Sometimes when we get angry with colleagues or workmates or friends, it's actually got nothing to do with them. It's actually all about me. And when it's all about me, I'm the one who's offended. I'm the one who's hurt. That is not the time. For anger, that is not the time for a passionate response. That is the time to become. And understanding that middle ground, that is the essence of meekness. But when someone else has been wronged, has been hurt, to have the 
to, to care enough to step up then passionately and be a part of it. As Barclay says, that is how many of our greatest social movements have begun. Our pastor of, um, of our West Campus, uh, Pastor Andy Melsop, he was a police officer uh, for several years before God called him into pastoral work. And I asked him when they had to get into, into the police, what was, what was all that about? And if I recall correctly, and I hope I do, Andy, um, he shared the story of being a little boy, maybe six years old, in a dysfunctional and abusive home. And one Christmas, one of the neighbors called the police because it was just, it was all going on. And he says, as a little boy, he said, this police officer walked through the front door of his home, this home marked by anger and fear. He said, and this police officer, he walked in on Christmas Day and he brought peace and he brought calm back to my world as a little boy. He says, and I decided then that I want to be like that man. And when I get old enough, I'm going to be like that man and I'm going to walk into other little boys' and little girls' homes and I'm going to bring peace, and I'm going to bring calm. What a beautiful example of this idea of being able to be passionate but balanced in what we do. That is the first part of what Jesus is saying we need to be when he says we need to be meek. The word praus has a second standard Greek usage, and it's this, and it's kind of best encapsulated, I guess, in the English word of controlled. It's the regular word for an animal which has been domesticated, a horse that has been broken, or a dog that is trained to be completely obedient. So the second possible translation for this beatitude then is this. Blessed is the person who has every instinct, every impulse, every passion under control. Blessed is the person who is entirely self-controlled. Now, William Barclay notes, he says, the problem is as soon as we say that, we kind of realize that actually that level of divine self-control is kind of largely impossible for most of us, but actually we find some semblance of that when we come, when we submit to God. So actually it's, it's kind of almost more about being truly and wholly God-controlled. But that is what we are looking for. Uh, I love the story of a guy called William Osler. William Osler was a man who these days is kind of generally considered to be the father of modern medicine. He was one of the four uh, founders of John Hopkins University and University Hospital in the States. Uh, an astonishing guy. And um, one of the things he did in his medical school when he was teaching doctors is that he always tried to instill in his doctors what he called the principle of equanimity, this idea of being entirely self-controlled. He said that a doctor... <clears throat> who is with a patient in a crisis, when that doctor is angry or sad or panicked, is not a doctor who will produce trust, calmness, or healing in a patient. Such a doctor must learn to be self-controlled. What a brilliant illustration. You know, for us as Christians, as friends, as parents, as, as husbands or wives, as professionals, as leaders... For us to realize that, for us to be the example that we're called to be, the men and women of influence that we're called to be, to be able to bring trust, calmness, and healing into situations, we must, too, be people entirely submitted and under control. Still, there's one more possible uh, interpretation of this word meek, and it's the word, I guess, in English, uh, the best one is probably the word humble. 
Now, the Greeks always contrasted prous, this idea of meekness. Uh, this was always contrasted with, with a word that means pride or arrogance. And, and the idea of meekness was that it was a humility that banished arrogance, banished pride. Without humility, a man or a woman cannot learn because the first step to learning is the realization of our own ignorance, of our own lack. <clears throat> From history, Quintilian, the great Roman teacher of oratory, once said of certain of his students, they would no doubt be excellent speakers if they were not already convinced of their own great knowledge. No one can teach the person who knows it all already. You see, without humility, there can, there can really be no love. Without humility, there can be no Christianity. Because both of those things must start with an awareness of our need and of our lack. We can only reach true maturity in life when we become conscious that we are creatures and God is the creator. And without him, we can do nothing. So this idea of prowess, of meekness, describes humility, the acceptance of the necessity to learn and of the necessity also to be forgiven, to need God's grace in our lives. It describes our only proper attitude to God. And so then the third possible translation of this beatitude is this. Blessed is the person who has the humility to know his or her own ignorance and weakness and to see their great need for growth. You know, from time to time uh, amongst Elon Christian Center, Auckland, amongst our campuses, we look to select a leader to become a pastor of one of our campuses, or if we're planting a new campus, we look for a leader to pastor that. And you know what? When we have those discussions, I can tell you from long experience, one of the top qualities we look for is this, this teachable humility. The man or woman who knows it all, who thinks that they're all that in a bag of chips, that person who wants to do things their own way because I got this, I know this, who has a measure, if we're honest, of pride, arrogance. Such a person is unqualified to stand on our platforms, no matter how well they speak or preach. A man and woman with an understanding, however, of their own weakness, of their own lack of their need and desire to grow, and their willingness to humbly submit themselves, that is a person who is qualified. That's the kind of person we're looking for. And this is one of the standout qualities of Shane, of Pastor Shane. I'm going to embarrass you, Shane. I'm sorry. But, um, you know, Shane's going to be taking over as lead pastor of this church sometime in the next couple of months. But um, I sat with Shane just this week on Tuesday at a cafe um, because we, we need to catch up on a bunch of things. And part of the conversation, along with encouraging him on all the things he's doing absolutely brilliantly, and there are many, uh, was something that I wanted him to work harder on. There was something that I felt he could do better. And so we spent probably um, at least half an hour pulling this thing apart and looking at it and examining where he was going wrong and how we could improve and how we could grow in this area. Now, look, we've all been on the end of those conversations in life. Oh, <laughs> I know I have a lot of those conversations. And they are always tough conversations. They're always painful conversations. You know, you always want to defend yourself and explain why it happened that way. And you always want to do those things. But you know what? You know what Shane's response was? I only got one response from him. Heartfelt, repeated thanks and, ask, and, and, and the request for more. That is a leader with a heart after God's. 
That is the kind of person that we are looking for, and that's the kind of person that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. So, in summary, I hope we can kind of get a picture now that certainly in the original language, it appears that meekness has nothing to do with weakness or passivity at all. If we go to the scriptures, we find in the Old Testament, Numbers talks about Moses, this astonishing leader, raised in the courts of Pharaoh, a man who knew his own strength. If you read the story, he was something else. The greatest leader that we've ever, in the scriptures, apart from maybe David, maybe Solomon. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. And yet this is what it says about him in Numbers 12, verse 3. Now, the man Moses, listen to this, was very meek, more than all the men that were on the face of the earth at that time. Now, isn't that interesting? Because if there's one thing we know about Moses, he was no weak or fearful character. He could be very strong. He seemed to have just an immense reservoir of courage to better just go to Pharaoh again and again and again. I mean, astonishing the kind of man he was. And yet, the Bible says he was more meek than anybody else in his generation. That should tell us something about what great leaders are and also tell us something about what meekness is. What about Jesus? This is what Jesus said about himself in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. He says, and you guys know the scripture, I'm sure. Come to me, he says. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, here it is, gentle. You know what the actual word is? It's pras. It's meek. For I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the man who rebuked the Pharisees. The man who confronted demons and cast them out. The man who walked through the violent crowd, who wanted to throw him off the cliff, and at some point he just turned and walked through them, and it says they couldn't lay a hand on him. This is the man who also healed the lepers, who loved the outcasts, who went to the lost, and who offered himself as a sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. Jesus' example is not one of weakness but of supreme, loving control, submission, and humility. I hope we're getting a feeling this morning of the kind of people that God is calling us to be through the Beatitudes. So let me for a moment just go to the second part of that verse, right? Because it says, blessed are the meek, or happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? It says, firstly, inherit which is interesting, right? It doesn't say they will earn the land or buy the land or be rewarded by the land. And the idea of, it says in Matthew, earth, but it relates to Psalm 37 where it says inherit the land. Inherit means to be gifted something, just to receive it. Not because of your performance or anything else, but because you're kind of in the family line. That's what inherit means. It's interesting that in history it has always been that men and women with this gifting of balance and control and humility, uh, with their passions and instincts and impulses disciplined, who have risen to do great things. So, the scripture says, we will inherit the land. Now, clearly being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean, if we're going to take this literally, that we suddenly, now all of a sudden, uh, get, get a hold of all the land and property titles of every place in our neighborhood. It's not like we're winning a lotto here. 
So, so there's obviously another interpretation, right? But there is a sense here of living freely in the land, enjoying the land in peace in the place where you are. It speaks to contentment that the Apostle Paul says is what, something of huge value if we can get a hold of it. Can I suggest for illustrative purposes this morning that maybe there are like three, three groups of people in the world. There's the aggressive, driven, I did it my way types. You know, they're always wanting more, perpetually discontent. They see something and they want it. Whether it's a car, a house, a person, whatever it is, they see it and they want it. So, for example, let's say that one of these people come along and they, they saw this beautiful park with, with lush uh, grass and, and beautiful trees. This is the kind of person that says, I want to have one of those. If I can't have that one, I want one like it. I'm going to have me one of those. But then there are a second group of people, those weak and passive types, who see something they want, but tell themselves that they do not deserve it and are not allowed it. They are the disempowered, timid, and often resentful ones. Look, look often for reasons that we may not appreciate things in their past, but the problem is they see a park and they assume it's not for people like them. And they can't go there. Then thirdly, there are the meek. Those submitted, self-controlled, humble types who are content. Content and grateful with what they have, what God has given them. They see a park and they are content enough not to have to own it. But also confident enough to go and enjoy it as if they did. You see, there's a real sense in the scripture that just such a person really does inherit the earth and all that is in it. You see, it belongs to his or her father, and so it belongs to them. So the last question we need to ask as the band come up and join me now is, why then was this message so countercultural? Because throughout history, we've understood that Jesus is teaching something that is completely countercultural. People couldn't get their heads around. We still struggle to get our heads around. What was he saying? He was calling those who follow him to a different way. So what was so radically countercultural about this whole idea of being someone who is balanced and self-controlled and God-controlled and humble and teachable? What is so countercultural about that? Well, we need to realize that the nation of Israel, dominated by the Roman Empire, had seen the power and felt the power of extreme violence, out of control rage, both of Caesar and his soldiers, and of extreme radicalism, because that's what Rome was, right? The dominance that it gained came from the liberal use of power and violence and excess and extremism. And so, first century Israel naturally, perhaps, understood that the answer was to meet that with greater power, greater violence, greater wrath. That was how they were going to inherit their land, get their land back, their pride back, their control of their lives back. And you see, this is what they assumed the Messiah would do when he came, that he would come and he would gather an army and they would wreak death and destruction on these Roman invaders. And yet, Jesus comes and he says something completely different. He says happiness and possessing the land comes a different way. His way. 
And so it's interesting when we look back with the lens of 2,000 years of history to see how Jesus and his followers have impacted the world so much more powerfully than the Roman Empire ever did. It's clear that this word prowse means far more than what this English word offers us. It's clear that there is no one English word, in fact, that will translate it. So perhaps the full translation of the third beatitude might be something like this. Happy is the person who is balanced, passionate at the right time and never at the wrong time, who has every instinct impulse and desire under control because they are God-controlled and who have the humility to realize their own weakness and to be forever teachable. Such a person is someone of gentle strength and growing influence, someone who inherits the land and finds peace and prosperity in all they do. So let me just challenge you for a moment. What does it look like to not have that? To not be that thing that is meek? What are the symptoms of that? Maybe you're familiar with some of these. Powerlessness, discontent, lack of self-control, lack of God control, irritation, uncontrolled ambition, a need for control over others. Anger, a residual resentment. If anything on that list is something that you might tick off, maybe it's time for us this morning to let go of the need to control, to let go of the desire to possess, to let go of the drive to win at all costs, and instead to become like Jesus, the person who was so perfectly and wonderfully balanced, passionate at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. A man who had every instinct, impulse and desire completely under his control because he was God-controlled and with the humility to realize his own weakness. May each of us be like that, for then we will inherit the land. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you, Lord, for your astonishing teaching. And God, for this incredible promise that as we follow you, as we walk in your steps, Lord, in this remarkably countercultural way in this excessive and violent world in which we live, God, I thank you, Lord, that you have demonstrated for thousands of years that just such a person finds contentment, freedom, and purpose. And I pray, God, for every one of us here today that, Holy Spirit, you will help us step out of a place of discontent and into a place of meekness that we might truly become like you, Jesus, in everything that we do, in Jesus' name, amen. Just before we close, look, maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. You've never kind of entered into kind of a friendship with him, a relationship with him. Or maybe you have and you've kind of drifted from it. 
But if you're honest, wherever you are right now, you kind of you know you're not right with God. The Bible says in John 3:16 that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Now I love that. He so loved the world. It doesn't say He so loved the Christians, right? Which means He loves you. He loves me. He loves everybody out there the same. He really does. And he wants us to know him and experience his love and plan for our lives. But the Bible also says in Romans 3 that we've all sinned. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory or God's standard. That's me, that's you, that's every single one of us. And it's our sin, it's our rejection of God as the rightful authority in our lives. That's what keeps us separated from knowing him and experiencing him. And that's why Jesus came 2,000 years ago, died on the cross. He was punished, we are told for what we have done wrong. And he did it so that we could be forgiven and given a brand new start. You know, in John chapter 1, it says, to all those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the astonishing thing. It's not about, it's not about getting all cleaned up for God. The cleaning up happens later. The question is simply, Will you make the decision today to trust him and to receive him into your life as your boss, as your Lord, as your friend? You know, I made that decision in a gas station on Manukau Road when I was 22 years old. Changed my life forever. For some of us, maybe it's time for you to make that decision right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. I'm going to ask us all to close our eyes and bow our heads and just afford one another privacy in this moment. If that's you, if, if, if it's time for you to make that decision, to get right with God, the beauty is, is because it's a relationship, it's not a religion, it's, a, it's about having a conversation. It's about making a decision. And I'd love to lead you in that. Why don't you just follow along with me, just in your heart, but between you and God, if you need to get right with God today. Here we go. It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, Thank you that you love me. God, I admit that I'm a sinner and that my sin is what keeps me separated from knowing you. But Jesus, I choose to believe today that you died for me in my place, that I might be forgiven and have my slate wiped clean today. Jesus, I receive you right now into my life, into my heart, as my God and as my Savior. Thank you, Father, for forgiving me of all my sin. Holy Spirit, would you fill me and help me to be the person you've called me to be? Thank you, Jesus, for making me part of your family today. In your name. Amen. I'm going to ask you if, just to keep your eyes closed and heads bowed just for one more moment because if you prayed that prayer today, I would just like to take a moment to pray for you. I'm not going to call you out, make you stand up. Not, that's not my intent. But I, I do want you to take a small step of faith this morning. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you if you prayed that prayer to lift up your hand, give me a wave and pull your hand back down just so I know who I'm praying for. I'm just going to pray a general prayer for you. And then a little bit later, we're going to get you to fill out a connect card if you want to. We'd love to connect with you and just give you some stuff that's going to help you get to know God more and get on this adventure. 
So if that's you, and you prayed that prayer for the first time today, just so I can know who I'm praying for, would you right now like this, lift your hand up, give me a wave and say, yeah, Mike, that was me. I prayed that prayer this morning. Anybody here this morning prayed that for the first time, got right with God, made that decision? Just as I'm looking across the auditorium, anybody here? Say, yeah, Mike, that was me. Would you include me in that prayer? Okay. Cool, I can't see any hands, but you know what? My experience is that probably a couple of us did pray that prayer. And I'm just going to pray anyway, if you'll bear with me. Jesus, I thank you, God, for anyone who did pray that prayer this morning, who got right with you. God, I ask you to bless them. Surprise them with your goodness, just like you did with me in that gas station all those years ago. God, take a hold of their life, God. Let them know the freedom from being forgiven. Bless them from this day forward, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.